Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand, book one, chapters 26 through 34. Let's start the show. Society has collapsed due to the superflu. The few remaining survivors realize the world has moved on and that they too must move on. We are introduced to a trio of new characters. Jay, my book recaps are getting more and more vague and impressionistic. 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 Pretty soon they'll just be Sidney Pollock paint splatters. <laughs> Jackson Pollock. Sidney Pollock's the director. <laughs> Either one. They're both perfect for an audio medium. Does that count as a malapropism? Uh, or is it just me being an idiot? No, yeah, I don't think it's either. I think it's just mistaken identity. Anyhow, at least in this beginning part of the stand, Jay, with all the happenings that are happening all over the country, and we yeah. are in separate characters who haven't gotten together yet, there's not really a good way of recapping the book without either being super general or getting way into the specifics of, and then this happened to Nick, and then this happened to Stu, and then this happened to Larry. And I don't think that our listeners who are very smart want to hear that level of detail because they read the book. They know what happens. Uh, we just want to give at least a few sentences to remind people where they are. Yeah. I mean, it's a sprawling story with a lot of characters. So keeping it at the level where you are, I think is uh, yeah. the right way. And you might have noticed, Jay, that I said that the world has moved on. Oh. See what I did there? Yeah. Sneaky. Anyhow, with all those main characters that we've been talking about, one of the things that I noticed is that each one of our characters seems to be dealing with some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and they're dealing with it in different ways. And none of them are very well. Like, this is a traumatic experience that has happened. And it's it's happened quick. You and I were commenting that this has really only been two or three weeks since Patient Zero uh, yeah. ran into that gas station. That's probably the only thing that I would, I would challenge you with the PTSD diagnosis is that that needs to be post-trauma. <laughs> and this is kind of, you know, mid-trauma. Like the trauma is still happening. Yeah. But I, I seed your point that I, this is these characters dealing with these vast changes and they're all changes for the worse. Right. Right. And we've almost had a time jump here because when we get introduced back to each one of our characters in this section, things have changed a lot since we last saw them. And, and we see some of it in flashback and we, we hear about some of it. But let's start um, in order. We begin with Larry Underwood, and he's just sort of freaked out by what New York has become. Uh, he moved yeah. back to New York from L.A. because... He needed to get away from the way his life was falling apart. And he figured, I'll come home. I'll be with my mom. I'll be in a city that I know and love and am surrounded by things that are comfortable to me. And now he's sitting in, the, in Central Park almost alone, except for a crazy guy who's yelling about monsters. Yeah. I mean, at this point, New York's going to make a whole new flavor of gravy. 
<laughs> You're giving me a confused look. There is a comedian who once said that New York is a really special place. And when it rains, it makes gravy because ah, it's so dirty. Right. So now that with all these dead people around and dead animals and trash that hasn't been taken away, it's like, it's like holiday gravy. Shouldn't you have saved that reference for our yucking it up section, Jay? Nah, it's not that disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. As a New Yorker, you're allowed to say that, I guess. I guess. Yeah. So, so Larry doesn't seem to be doing well. Um, I get the sense that Larry is a extrovert. He seems to be, you know, a, as a lot of performers are, an outgoing type of person. He likes to be surrounded by people. And I mm. think that all of a sudden being put in a situation where he's sort of alone and he doesn't have any place to fall back on um, is not a good mental place for him. I would agree. And he's also keenly aware of all the death around him, just like anybody would be. So after seeing countless other people die around him and then being at his mother's side when she dies, he has no choice but to face the fact that he is now in a wasteland of death. And he's also stuck in a city that used to be his home, but hasn't been for many years and is still feels like a different place. Like it, he was away from New York long enough that it didn't feel like home anymore. Mm -hmm. And Instead, it just felt like this awkward, nostalgic place. And now it's an awkward, nostalgic place full of dead people. <laughs> so, yeah, I could see why he'd be going through some some traumatic stress right now. Yeah. Now, we'll move over to Franny. Hers is much more obvious because she goes into these deep trances where she loses time. So we go from, I think, the last chapter with her, her mother. She, he, she got a phone call from her father that her mother was sick and being taken away in an ambulance. And now we've jumped forward and her mother has died and her father is dead upstairs in his bed. And she had taken care of him for his last few days before he died. And she's sort of just zoning out and not dealing with it. And we get this weird scene where like she's she's burned food on the on the oven and that reminds her of something. And it's so hot and there's a smell. And what happens when? It gets hot and she can't put her finger on it. And then she realizes, oh my God, my father's going to smell when it gets really hot and I need to do something about it. And her mind is just working in a totally different way than what we've seen it work before. So we spent a lot of time talking about how interior Franny is and how mm -hmm. she can sort of see the situation and, and comment on it and understand her place in it and what everyone's going through. And we see a totally different Franny here in that things are just sort of going in and out of her head and she can't hold on to a thought for long and she just zones out and having problems with that. So uh, she's dealing with this trauma in a much different way than, than Larry is. Yeah. The, the Franny we've, we've spent time with up to this point has demonstrated herself to be keenly intelligent and a very introspective thinker and the death of everybody around her, especially her parents and, and most especially her father has sort of just made the the machinery of her mind sees and mm. and it just stops working. It doesn't work less. It doesn't like diminish. It's just like seems to full stop. Yeah. And that that's where she loses time. That's where she almost burns down the house trying to make French fries. And so it's a very stark difference for somebody like Franny to go from this really smart person to somebody who can't even, you know, pay attention to what she's doing long enough to not set her kitchen on fire. 
So all the more reason to respect what King has done in establishing this character, mm. that we can see this vast gulf in behavioral change. Yeah. We'll get to Franny's other issue later on when we introduce some of our new characters, but that's something else she's going to have to deal with is not also adding to a, uh, a pleasant existence. So we'll, we'll get to that. Let's move over to Stu. So other than that first chapter, when we see Stu in the gas station, uh, when patient zero runs into the gas tanks, Stu's been under lock and key mm-hmm. for the novel up to this point being experimented on because he seems to be somebody who's immune to the flu. And he's been taken to Vermont because Atlanta's CDC has been infected. So he's been taken to a new hospital in Vermont. And now that hospital is falling apart. And it seems like a guard's last order is to kill Stu. And (laughs) Stu does the old, hey, what's that over there? And is able to escape. Um, (laughs) But there is a, a, a pretty haunting scene of Stu running through this empty hospital and seeing You know, he's been sort of, he knows to some extent that things are bad, but it's not until he escapes his room and sees dead people all around or people on their way to dying that he is haunted by this just sort of hospital that's falling apart, dead people. He thought things were under control and they're obviously not. And I I love how King has Stu sort of alternate between he wants to get out of the cell. He's sick of being in the small room and being caged up. And then as soon as he gets out, he seems to have agoraphobia. He goes from this claustrophobic, I want to get out, to, oh my God, I can't stand to be out here. I want to go. I think King even says, like, Stu wanted to go back to his room and sort of curl up in a fetal position um, because Mm -hmm. it was just sort of too much to be out there. And part of that's being a prisoner for the last couple of weeks. But the other part of that is just the horror of what he's seeing. Yeah. I mean, Stu's just dealing with two sides of that coin where he's so desperate to escape that whatever is on the other side of that locked door doesn't matter to him. It's okay. It's better than the, the imprisonment. But once he's there, he's like, he, maybe that wasn't a true assumption, right? It's like what's on the other side of that door is really bad. Um, but retreating back into that room doesn't solve any problems. It's just, yeah. Being out in the, the world among the dead is not a pleasant place to be. Yeah. I don't know if it's because it's such a trope that there's so many, movies and television shows that happen in in hospitals where you know a character's tied up and then has to escape whether it's from jason or freddie or i think even stranger things had a hospital scene recently and um did i could just sort of see these like flickering lights and running down these hallways and uh i don't know that the scene hit me more more this read through than it ever has before yeah same same for me and it, it made me kind of think a little bit of the um, it made me think of the TV adaptation and it's been a long time since I've watched that, but I don't remember this happening in the TV adaptation mm. and it feels like a missed opportunity. I, I suspect it's not hard to make a jump scare type scene of somebody running through, um, a hospital, you know, an empty hospital with flickering lights and locked doors and shadowy corners. Right. Right. Why wouldn't they do that? for the TV miniseries, even if it's only for like a minute. Yeah. You know, it's enough to really add to the doom and gloom of this, of the, the TV show. And it, I just, I don't remember that happening and yeah. it could be that I just don't remember it, but I, I don't think it was there. Yeah. I have so many hospital scenes. Like I'm even thinking there's a couple of mystery science theater episodes that have 
<laughs> hospital scenes where they're trying to get away from somebody it just seems like a like i said I, I think it might be a common trope so perhaps they were sticking away from it or staying away from it i'm not exactly sure yes they they were taking the high road and avoiding the tv <laughs> tropes right right yes yes so one of the characters who is already maybe a little bit mentally disturbed is lloyd henry i don't think that um He's quite all together. If you remember, he's the man who has gone on the uh, killing spree with uh, the pokerizer. And uh, Lloyd is not all there. Um, just like he only has 17 teeth, he doesn't have all 52 cards in his deck. And mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> he is stuck in jail, which already can lead to trauma. But when you're stuck in jail and people are dying around you and the guards aren't coming back anymore, that's when things really start to get bad. Yeah. Um, this is starting to, to draw some parallels between Lloyd and Stu. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, they're very different people, but at the beginning of, of this section of the book, they're, they're both imprisoned and they're both the only living thing left in this prison basically. And how are they going to deal with that? It's a, they might not be dead from the disease, but they'll die of starvation. They'll die of dehydration if if they can't get out of the rooms that they're in right and lloyd starts to as discombobulated as he is you know like he is start he's a little bit crafty where he starts to save food and then he starts to look around his environment to, to find you know how else could he free himself how else could he feed himself so he's being resourceful and that's you know that's part of what why he you know is able to survive this this imprisonment right? yeah for now i mean we're not sure he's going to survive yeah and at what cost will that survival come some mm -hmm. sort of wrath sandwich perhaps yeah i mean like lloyd has the thought that like because there's somebody else screaming in the prison and when that that voice goes away as much as he hated hearing it he thought even the company of the mad was better than the company of the dead yeah and i sort of wondered like is it though? <laughs> Do you want to be trapped with a person who's alive but is completely crazy because of circumstances or otherwise, or just be surrounded by corpses? Like at least the corpses can't hurt you. Yeah, I have a feeling like perhaps being in just the company of the dead is going to drive him mad, anyways. Hmm. As as I think all these characters are right. Like everyone we've talked about so far is really sort of on that edge of sanity versus insanity um Stu seeing stuff around corners that may or may not be there and he's worried about it you know franny's going into these trances that are causing her to forget things that are important and, and may freak out her life you know make may cause harm to her physically you know mm -hmm. if she burns down the house accidentally or who knows what um you know larry is in a place surrounded by dead people even if he can't get the flu, there's a decent chance that he's going to pick something up from, you know, I can't imagine that 7 million people dead in New York is good for your health uh, as you're wandering around those bodies. So like all these characters are on the edge of sanity anyways. So they might be finding out that the company of the mad is where they are. It's not going to be their own company. Their own company is going to be that. Mm. I like that. Yeah. So our last main character that we've been hanging out with is Nick. And I don't see quite as much of the PTSD in Nick. I mean, he's just sort of alone. Um, 
he seems to be trying to handle things the best he can. Like for somebody who just drifted into this town and immediately got beat up, like he's trying to take care of things. Like as the, the prisoners who are under his care, he's trying to keep alive. And when they die, he does his best to like get them out of their jail cells and keep them away from the other dead people. And, you know, he releases somebody and like he seems to be trying to keep things in order as best he can, which is sort of surprising for somebody who up until a week ago did not have connections to this town. Yeah, he he almost like takes ownership of the whole town. He sort of like took over. He He was deputized, right? Right, he was. So he became the second in command of the <laughs> sheriff. And when the sheriff could no longer perform his duties, that left Nick in charge of being effectively the sheriff of the town. And it might be the sheriff of a town with everybody's dead. <laughs> right. And, and, but he's still like, he feels this acute sense of responsibility and he's, he's, he's really breaking his back trying to fulfill that responsibility because he can't drive a car. Right. He doesn't, he can't use the phone and every place is like not in walking distance. So all of these things, all of these burdens that he's taken upon himself, for, like you said, for a town that he probably didn't even know existed until he walked into it. Right. That's kind of amazing. And it gives us a, a really strong sense of his character. Right? Yeah. Like yeah, this is the he's type like, of person he is. Yeah. He goes around door to door to see if anyone else is still alive. Even when he goes to the cafeteria to get food for his prisoners, he's like knocking on the door first, only breaks the window when he has to leaves a note so that they could charge mm -hmm. the sheriff's office for anything that happened. It's like, oh, dude, it's it's over. Um, I do think it's interesting that the major sort of confrontation in Nick's chapter is with the man who beat him up mm -hmm. when we first met him. And for whatever reason, that scene was not in the original version of The Stand, which mm. sort of surprises me that they introduced this character, had him get away while the rest of his cronies got picked up and put in jail, and, and this one got away. And uh, only in the revised version does he have this confrontation where with Nick where the two of them are fighting, and then Nick, the gun goes off, and Nick possibly gets his eye pushed out. Like, we don't know the extent of that. Like, he's worried. He's now blind in one eye. As he gets this thumb, like, poke through this eye. I mean, things are not good for Nick. Yeah, the, the guy does something to Nick's eye that is bad enough to cause it cause blood to come out of it. Yeah. Whether it's like a scrape of his eyelid or actual damage to the eye itself isn't clear yet, but just I was thinking the same thing that Nick thinks. Like I, I'm deaf. I can't speak. And now I am going to not be able to see? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Right. And at that point was the first time we've we've heard him acknowledge the fact that his teeth are broken. Yeah. <laughs> since his initial attack and he's like oh man like this town is taking the last few things i have left but he's he still remains remarkably upbeat like he does not seem to be a person defeated right even in this this extreme moment of his life that's kind of remarkable yeah so to put a bow on this section i, I guess i just wanted to comment that for a book that was originally written in the 70s and, you know, I don't think PTSD was a common term back then. King has sort of nailed what that is like for these characters in different mm -hmm. and unique ways. Like they're not all dealing with the same type of reaction to the stress that they're going through. 
Um, but he does a good job of bringing this to life. Like it's very easy to see, like this is how a character might feel were this to happen to them, were they to see, you know, huge amounts of death happening and um, having to deal with it. Like this is how different characters would react. I think King has sort of nailed that in a really fine way. I agree. And we've seen examples of this in his later writing in stories that take place in a similar time period, like Hearts in Atlantis and Blind Willie. Mm. Those are connected stories, but they, they have a lot to do with living through these traumatic moments. And then what is life like after? And this is, I kind of joked earlier that, you know, this is mid trauma, not post trauma, but these characters still need to find a way through this if they are going to continue beyond this point. So eventually they're going to have to find a way to make this, to incorporate these traumas into who they are and then maybe emerge a new version of themselves, but still, still emerge, still continue. Right. So I think that's a good transition to our next topic, which is that the first chapter of this section, chapter 26, is another one of those king 30,000 foot view what's happening across the country to some of to, to the rest of the world, not our main characters. So we, we, we start this section with the general before going to the specific. And we can really tell that this has moved from being an apocalyptic novel to a post-apocalyptic novel. Hmm. And, and I think that change happens really in chapter 26, where we see what's happening across the country. And some of those high-level things are a giant protest at Kent State University in which the federal troops kill hundreds and hundreds of students. Yep. A military group that's sent to kill a radio host who has saying things on the radio that the government doesn't want to hear. Uh, we see a publisher of a newspaper sort of printing a last edition before yep. succumbing to the disease where he's trying to like get the word out that things are being covered up. And then I think the chapter ends with the president of the United States telling a bunch of lies. Yeah, tell, making a speech to the country that is not entirely true and seems to be happening from a bunker somewhere and has the president coughing and sneezing throughout. Uh, so we don't think that that's good for him. But we've really changed from what had been impacting pockets of people here and there to seeing that this is a disaster that's really finishing off the whole country. Yeah, if not the world. Yeah. This is the tipping point, right? Like, like you said a moment ago, we have gone from apocalypse to post-apocalypse. And that's where I think for readers new to this book, they probably expected that this to be a po post-apocalyptic story. But King takes his time getting us to that point. He wants us to learn about what was the world that is taken from these characters. And he wants to give us a chance to meet these characters before the apocalypse mm. so that we can see how different they are after. And I, I love that about King's structure here. Yeah. So now that we're beyond the apocalypse and we're in the post-apocalyptic phase of this story, let's talk some more about those, those moments that you listed. Like, what's the deal with the military killing everybody, uh, like the students in this college campus? Yeah. And why did King choose Kent State of, of any college he could have named? Yep. Why did he choose Kent State? Yep. So Kent State is where I got my master's degree from, and it sits about 15 minutes from my house. So I'm not far away from there. So um, I'm pretty familiar with the tragedy that happened in 1970 when the National Guard fired upon a number of students protesting the Vietnam War, wounding nine and, and killing four. And it's really pales in comparison to the 
fictionalized version that King has done here, right? Where there are yeah. literally thousands of students protesting and it sounds, we don't get an exact number, but hundreds of them, it sounds like are being killed uh, and really just sort of indiscriminately killed throughout this. And for me, this scene, like others in this chapter, are King drawing on tragedies from real life and exponentially making them worse. So we get the Kent State version, which is something that, again, in the mid-70s when he wrote this would have been very familiar and a fresh wound in a lot of people's minds at the Mm -hmm. time. And so he's building on that and saying like, hey, remember how this was really bad? Well, if we were to enter a post-apocalyptic situation, it would be a hundred times worse. Um, And I think he pulls that through. Like a lot of the things that were happening in the 60s and 70s, he sort of spikes up here. So there's the Kent State piece. There is the fact that you know, after Watergate, people's trust in the government dropped precipitously. Mm. People didn't know if they could trust what their government was telling them or even what their president was telling them on a regular basis. And here we have a military that is destroying the newspapers because the newspapers are printing the truth and the government doesn't want them to tell the truth. We have a president who's telling lies because he thinks it will help the country when in fact it's not. It's just sort of trying to cover up uh, what people need to know. And I think King's just sort of drawing on this to say, yeah, this is this is what it could be like. I think that's where the time change from setting this book in the late 70s to setting it in the 90s really changes because that mood that was in the country in the 70s, the late 60s and 70s, which The Stand was written just prior to that, that's not the same mood of the optimistic 80s when people had a little bit more faith in their government, when people didn't really have that protesting gene in them that they did earlier. It it sort of seems out of place here in, in the the new version of the stand. I think this book will always suffer that that feeling of being disjointed or, or maybe disconnected from its own time because of um I think King did a lot of really good work and and spent a, a lot of time and attention to detail in changing things throughout this book on, you know, Almost every page probably has an edit or something like that. Right. And he added so much content in that was originally cut out of the, the first edition. We've talked about that. But there's still things. It's like the the foundation of the story, like you're talking about the the mind space that the public was in, the the zeitgeist of the time when the book was first written and then in, in first published. It was a very different world. Yeah. And it's just not possible to make enough changes to the 1990 version of this book to make some of these things still have the same impact or even make sense. Right. You know, everything from flags, denim outfit and (laughs) mullet hairstyle kind of thing to this idea of like the Kent state massacre being fresh on people's minds and, and choosing Kent state as the, the representative school. Yeah. It just, it loses some of its oomph. Yeah. It's not a bad thing, but I almost wish he hadn't updated the time. Like, yeah, put put the extra content back in, you know, fill out the story, flesh out the characters and the events more, but don't change the year that it takes place. Right. Then then we could just say, you know what, this is a 1978 book. Yeah. Now, ironically, we're saying that about 1990 when this book was republished, but 30 years later in 2020 reading this, it seems to have even more impact. Oh. <laughs> it It just might be the fact that we're recording this in late June, which is almost right in the timeline of when this these events are happening it's it's yeah. late june um the kent state 
the anniversary of those shootings uh, was last month. It was the 50 year anniversary. So at least in my area of the world, there's been a lot of retrospective looks at what's happening at Kent State and what happened there. Um, the fact that there were lots of protests in the late 60s that led to the, to this book in the 70s. And now there are lots of social protests happening around the country. And the fact that we have politicians lying to us on a, a regular basis. Like, even though King missed the time in 1990, he has unexpectedly nailed it now. Yes. What you just said is part of what makes reading this book right now, for me, the scariest Stephen King book I've ever read. Hmm. But it's not because of the dark corners or the evil man who can do magic. It's because this is too real. Yep. We are all living through a pandemic. The story is about a pandemic. We are living through a time of intense social upheaval, protests. You live very close to Kent State University. I live a few miles away from the demilitarized zone in Seattle. Like, this is a time of really strange things happening around us. And they're all kind of in one way or another captured in this story that King wrote in 1978. Yep. And it feels like I'm living the book. And because of that verisimilitude, it makes me uncomfortable in a way that King's scariest stories and spookiest and, and most disturbing descriptions have failed to do. Yeah. There are other parallels to now as well. Um, there are groups of soldiers who aren't identified soldiers. They're just sort of random militias, it seems like. Mm. I think it's hinted at that they're like retired soldiers who are still willing to follow orders who are brought back out. And then even closer to home, there are these people who are denying that the flu exists, that the super flu exists. Yep. Despite the fact that they're roaming around coughing and sneezing, they're like, no, 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 it doesn't exist. That's just fake news, basically. All of this just, it made it very uncomfortable reading. And I think a, another part of that is that other than flag, there's nothing really supernatural happening in this section or in this book so far. And that's another reason that it seems to hit close to home. Yep. So, Jay, we have what seems to be three pretty important characters introduced in this section that we probably want to spend some time with. Now that we're in that post-apocalyptic section, we can sort of tell that the people who are still around are probably not going to die of the flu. So they're, they're worth talking about now. Um, and it's a trio of characters. And let's start with Harold Lauder, who is one of Franny's friend's younger brother. Mm -hmm. And we've actually heard of Amy Lauder being mentioned before. She's the one who's getting married. And Franny's mom is very concerned about, will Franny be able to go to the wedding pregnant? And what is Amy Lauder's going to wear? And what will her parents think? Blah, blah, blah. So we already know a little bit about this family. Um, but this is the first time we're introduced to Harold. And uh, what, what do you think of Harold there, Jay? Harold is uh, not too easy to like. He comes across as a pretty pretentious kind of creep of a guy. And he's uh, he's so strange. He's just very off-putting, for yeah. sure. You know, we find out he's 16 years old. He's claimed a, a big fancy car from somebody in town and does not know how to drive it yet. <laughs> no. It doesn't care that he just sort of stole it. It's like, hey, well, that guy's dead. He's not going to need it. Right. I, I mean, I, I would do the same thing. <laughs> but when he talks to Franny, like he calls her my child. Yeah. Just those two words are enough for me to just like make my skin crawl about this guy. 
Like, like how how dare you? What, what, who does he think he is to call anybody that? Yeah, it's just weird. So yeah, King's starting him off at a pretty pretty low point of of likability. And it's weird because King's not usually like that. Like like we talked about Lloyd Henry. Guy's a murderer. A murderer. He <laughs> doesn't seem that smart. He seems sort of sociopathic. And yet there are things to like about Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And and Harold, like I haven't been able to find one yet. Um, and even Franny, who we who's presented to us as somebody who sees the good in everybody, like we're told that Harold is one of the very few people in town that Franny honestly didn't like. Like just no yep. bones about it. I don't like this guy. And and Franny seems to be okay with just about everyone. So um yeah, Harold's not set up to be somebody that we should like. Yeah, and it is kind of interesting. I guess you could think of it kind of like uh, Murphy's Law kind of thing where of all the people we've met so far who are immune to the flu, mm. only one of them has actually known another one. Right. And they actually have an existing relationship, if you will. Like, they're not just nodding acquaintances in the town. Like, like they kind of grew up together. Yes. Yeah. He's the younger brother of one of her best friends. And that could be a lot of the reason why there is so much animosity there. It's, it's, <laughs> it's easy to dislike the little, the, like the little brother or little sister of your friend if they're enough years younger than you. Yep. So I could get that. But Harold doesn't do anything for himself to, to like make it about that. It's like he just seems like it's hard to like him. Yep. I'm sure we'll be encountering him some more as the book continues. Next is somebody in New York City. It's Rita Blakemore. And she is an older woman who hooks up with Larry. And we don't learn a lot about Rita in this chapter with Larry, but it seems to be being set up to figure out if Larry's going to be a nice guy this time. Like we've been told throughout the chapters, we've seen Larry that he doesn't have the greatest relationship with women. And the last time we saw Larry with a woman, it was her throwing a spatula at him and hitting him in the head. And uh-huh. saying you're not a nice guy you ain't no nice guy and i just the whole time he was with reed i'm wondering will larry be a nice guy this time or not yeah that's a good thing to wonder because <laughs> it's i uh, we don't really see enough of their interaction at this point like they're just sort of like oh you're alive i'm alive and, you know like and they both have this animosity towards the monster guy yeah who's running around central park sort of crazy and once they realize, hey, we both have this in common, we're, we don't like the monster guy. Well, that's enough to build a relationship on, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It should be. All right. The third character we introduced is the one we really want to spend a little bit of time with because he does seem the most interesting. And again, despite the fact, <laughs> despite the fact that he's obviously very disturbed, um, is a pyromaniac and maybe a sociopath, uh, trash can man, as he is called, is even somewhat more likable than Harold Lauder at this point. Somewhat? I would rather, I would spend all day with Trash Can Man. I don't want to spend any time with Harold Lauder, which is really sad about Harold. I mean, he's just like a regular guy. You know, he's not going to set you on fire or do some other <laughs> unpredictable thing to you. He's just going to be annoying. And lecherous. Admit it. The lechery is, I think, a lot that drives Franny nuts. But anyway, Trash Can Man, as you say, is very disturbed. The culminating act is him blowing up some sort of oil refinery or distillery or something yep. like that. It's it's those huge, huge like water tower sized containers of oil or gasoline or something like that. Something that has been 
gnawing at the back of his mind his whole life. He yeah. has seen them at the top of the hill from across town and just wondered, what would it be like to set that on fire? I wonder, I wonder. Yep. And by the time we get to the, the point where he lights them on fire, I was kind of curious myself. <laughs> That's why I like this character. He's fascinating. And yes. King writes him so well. It is amazing. Like King's ability to put these profound, if not beautiful, thoughts in the mind of a disturbed, broken man is a testament to King's skill. Like, Trash Can Man is walking up the catwalk to the top of this thing to set it on fire and blow it to bits. And then he, like, takes a look up at the sky and thinks about these wonderful things, like how it's like the ceiling of the world and <laughs> how he can, like, just reach up and touch it and, and all this I don't know if we're supposed to think that these are trash can man's thoughts or just King, the narrator kind of describing the environment, mm. but I kind of want it to be trash can man. I, I, I think that it is him. You know, he's at the same time that he can see beauty in the destruction of fire. He can also see beauty in other things. And because of his very difficult childhood and adulthood, a lot of that explains why he's the way he is. Yeah. So I have sympathy for him. And he's also really interesting. Like, I, I don't know what he's going to do next. And from a, a fictional character perspective, that's great. Yeah, true. The other thing about Trash Can Man is he seems very smart or at least has some ingenuity on his part. Like, mm -hmm. he's able to figure out how to blow up these tanks without blowing himself up, which I think... It, it's I a mean, close thing. It's a but, close call, yeah. but like... He's able to figure out, like, I need to go to the top. I need to set up some sort of fuse of, of some kind and, and get away. But, like, it would be very easy to just, like, hey, I'm going to throw a firecracker here and blow up the whole thing. But he's got enough ingenuity to figure this out. He, he might not be all together up top in the top of his head, but he's got enough there that, and I think this plays into what you were saying about the descriptions, like, he's got some creativity to him. Mm. I, I don't want to go to as far as to say he's an artist in, in Pyromania, but like he's able to like think in a different way that is able to get those tanks on fire. And that just seemed interesting to me. He's not a brute. Like, I guess that's, he's not using yeah. brute force. He, he is not an artist, but he, he has artistic qualities. How's that? Yeah. I think that, I think that that's fair. And I don't know if he would think of them as artistic, but like, I, I like to consider myself fairly smart and I'm not sure if I have like an engineering enough background to figure out like how would I blow up this tank, let alone three of them in a way that would allow me a chance of survival. Yeah. And he plans ahead. Not only does he bring a whole set of tools because he knows he's going to need to take some things apart, but he also brings a can of gasoline because yeah. he's not sure if there will be enough flammable substances where he plans to light the match. Yeah. Right. And then as soon as he realizes, oh, I don't need this gasoline, he chucks it over the side. Right. But he brought it there just in case. Yeah. And there's that that moment where King describes him as, as having this like sort of instinctive affinity for mechanical things. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any training in a skilled trade, it seems, but he has this intuition where he can just kind of look at something that's mechanical and grasp how it works and yeah. understand how to take it apart or fix it put it back together right here he's putting it to use to destroy <laughs> a thing but that doesn't take away the fact that he has this ability yeah and that's, that's a skill. not common 
Right. Exactly. I think that that's what I was trying to get at, that, that, that there's a there's a skill there that shouldn't be overlooked just because of what the end result is. Right. I thought it was really cool that Trash Can Man, um, when he was admiring his handiwork, when these giant gas tanks were engulfed in flames, he had this thought that there were bigger and better fires ahead and his eyes were soft and joyful and utterly crazy. But they were also the eyes of a man who had discovered the great axle of his destiny and had laid his hands upon it. <laughs> I just, like, not only are all those other things that we talked about true, this almost seems like he's a man of vision. <laughs> yes. How is it that this really disturbed guy is also, like, has these artistic qualities and these skills and this vision of his potential. So he's he's so complex, and we've spent very little time with him. So right. again, hats off to King here for creating this amazing character. But also, I can't wait to spend more time with him. What is going to come next with him? I, 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 it's like it could be anything, and that's one of the joys of this character for me. I don't know if that says anything bad about myself. Like <laughs> My favorite character so far is a crazy pyromaniac but hey what are you gonna do what are you gonna do so jay that line that you just quoted about trash can man the great axle of his destiny mm. does that remind you of anything kind of makes me think of some dark tower thinnies i think you're right yeah so it seems like the trash can man might be revolving around something maybe ka Destiny, Ka, who knows? But uh, I think we've got a couple more maybe obvious Dark Tower thinnies. I don't know. These, these seem pretty strong to me. The first one I noticed is that Stu, the quiet and silent hero that we've met so far, has read Watership Down by Richard Adams, who you will remember mm. was also the author of Shardik, which was so important in that third Dark Tower novel. Yeah. Something to do with rabbits. Yes. King has to go through some uh, contortions to get Stu to read the book. Yeah. Stu's, Stu's not what you would call a strong reader. Um, he's buying the book for a nephew and just happens to look at it and, oh, look, it's about rabbits and let me take a look at it. But yeah, he reads it. I think more importantly than the Dark Tower connection between Watership Down and, and Shardik is the connection between Stu and Lloyd that we pointed at earlier. Oh, yeah. How, how they're both captured and, and trapped. And Lloyd actually reminisces about a pet rabbit that he had that he wanted a fair and then had built a, a, a pen for in his backyard and then promptly forgot about it. And mm -hmm. after a week, he found out that the rabbit had died of starvation, but not before trying to eat its own paws. And that seemed almost to be foreshadowing for the situation that Lloyd is in now. So I thought it was a good connection because those two chapters follow each other back to back in the book. So. We get Stu reading Watership Down and then Lloyd being in a situation of a trapped rabbit. Yeah, I mean, that was a master stroke of, of writing structure, in, yeah. in my opinion, to, to parallel those two characters of, of Stu and Lloyd and then their connection to rabbits and then overlaying the suffering of the rabbits in Watership Down and the craziness of their society and the suffering of Lloyd's pet rabbit and that it had starved to death just like Lloyd is about to do. And it was willing to consume its own flesh to try to survive just a little longer. It was just parallel upon parallel and just like, 
perfecto. Yes. It also reminds me of, uh, I think it's in Skeleton Crew, there's a short story called Survivor Type, mm-hmm. where where the narrator has to uh, amputate his body and start to eat it to survive while lost on a desert island, uh, deserted island, uh, the only survivor of a plane crash filled with tons and tons of cocaine, if I remember correctly. Yeah. If he was on a but, desert island, he would have plenty to eat. <laughs> yes. A desert island. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The nice thing about making this connection to the Dark Tower is just remembering that King had a book in the Dark Tower series that had a robot bear with a satellite dish on its head that uh-huh. had to be like that that had to be shot off by uh, our heroes. I mean, that was just sort of batshit crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, but awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love it. We needed more Shardik. Like, you know, I think when I was reading that book, I'm like, all right. There's going to be 12 of these creatures, aren't there? Because there's 12 parts on, yeah, I can't wait. on these beams. We're going to meet all these crazy like robot turtles, robot bears, who knows what else. A Dark Tower thingy that I found, this one's a little bit more of a stretch than the one you just uh, shared, was uh, shortly after we first meet Rita in Central Park, she shows Larry that she has a gun. Mm. And then almost immediately, for only reasons to like kind of just prove to herself maybe that the gun works or whatever, she just aims at a tree, pulls the trigger, and and shoots the tree as just something to aim for. But Rita says bullseye, and then blew smoke from the pistol barrel like a gunfighter. Mm. I don't want to say, like, anytime somebody pulls out a gun in this book that it's a thinny, because the gunslinger has guns. But that particular passage, like, that she used the gun like a gunfighter, yeah. and she's not described as a person who's familiar with guns or has spent lots of time using guns, shooting guns. So the fact that she can just pull this gun out, pick a target, and hit it, and then, you know, like, she just finished gunning down some enemies at the OK Corral, like, that just made me think of Gunslingers, and that's why I have it here. Nice. I, I dig it. Uh, this one might be a little more of a connection. The trash can man we learn in his backstory has gotten electroshock treatments to sort of cure him of his different mental problems that he has, mm-hmm. and at one point we're told... They root him down there in Terhout. Terryhout? Terhout? Terhout? I should know this. My brother lives not too far away from there. But the important word that I did pronounce correctly, at least in King's lingo, is root. <laughs> yes. Um, which brings us to the Wolves of the Kala when we have root characters. And Trash Can Man does have some characteristics of sort of mentally uh, challenged individual. Uh, not to the extent that the root children are in that book but uh the use of the word root which we talked about at length and how it was just that harsh sounding word uh, just sort of captured that nicely yeah it, it's so appropriate in, in making it such a guttural sound and i think the parallel continues here because just like in wolves of the kala this is something that is done to these mm. people they are ruined by this process and that is what has happened to trash can man he has been ruined by the electroshock treatments or if not totally by that it didn't help it made things worse right so anyway great connection to the dark tower with the word ruined and uh really good use of a not real word to convey so (laughs) much more the other thingy that i have is when the trash can man sets the oil tanks on fire it reminded me of the sitco oil fields Mm. in wizard and glass Part of the crescendo of that storyline is when 
Roland and his quartet decide that they're going to take away the source of, of oil from Farson, the good man, by just burning down these Sitco oil fields. They're doing that for a good cause, but they're effectively doing the same thing that Trash Can Man has, is doing yes. to the cheery oil tanks. So I figured there's a, there's a nice parallel there. Yeah, that's good. All right, our newest feature, special to the stand, is our yucking it up section. And I think this is the first section when they start to refer to Captain Tripp's, the superflu, as also called tube neck. And it's because as the glands of people uh, around their neck start to swell up and get discolored, it gets this awful black swollen nature to it. And it looks like an inner tube of a tire just sort of around someone's neck. and just the description of that sort of sent me over the edge. I think part of that is due to the fact that I have at least a dozen bike inner tubes hanging up in my garage of, of old inner tubes. And <laughs> I'm just, just imagining those around people's necks and just sort of swollen up uh, really sort of freaked me out. But it's a really good uh, description. I, I could definitely see that if, if people actually had these symptoms in a real disease, I could see that sticking. Yeah, definitely. One of the things I wanted to call out was when Larry is at the comfort station on Transverse 1 in Central Park. He opens one of the, the bathroom stall doors, and in it, there's a person who's died of Captain Trips. And the overly detailed and lengthy description of what this corpse looked like just made me like real in disgust. It was a grinning dead man with maggots crawling briskly hither and yon on his face. And his hands had settled on his bare thighs, his sunken eyes staring into Larry's own, like, yeah. And this is also the page opposite Bernie Wrightson's illustration of the very same thing in this passage. Yeah. And Wrightson's drawing of this makes this image in my, my mental image just all the more disgusting because he does such a good job of conveying this awful, putrid dead body. Yeah. Bernie Wrightson, who we should mention in our previous chapter, I don't think we've mentioned the illustrations yet. They're new to this edition of The Stand, mm. and they're all done by Bernie Wrightson, who did, I believe, Wolves of the Kala, the cover illustration. I know he did. I think that that's the one he did. Yes, I think so. And then obviously also uh, Creepshow. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of Stephen King connections with uh, Wrightson. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. My last one is... Uh, I think it gets at both yucking it up parts. It, it gets to the the grossness, but at the same time, the humor of some mm. of these of these things. So a, a Hall of Fame yucking it up. And you and I both noticed this. It's when Franny has finally gotten the nerve to bury her father. Stealing herself, she grasped his left arm. It was as hard and unyielding as a piece of furniture and pushed, rolling him over. As she did so, a hideous, long burping sound escaped him a belch that seemed to go on and on, rasping in his throat as if a locust had crawled down there and had now come to life in the dark channel, calling and calling. And just as the body settles and hearing that belch, it's one of those like, oh my God, that's the disgustingest thing. And yet somewhat funny as she's having to hear yeah. her, her father's last belch. Yeah, especially when you picture her like awkwardly kneeling over his body on the edge of the bed, trying to heave the, his his weight in one direction or another, and and of course this is the person she loved most in the world, and yep. it's like so much stuff is happening in this scene, and King just like 
kind of tears through all of it with how gross can I be? Yep. How, how disgusting can I be at this moment in time? Yeah. Well, as always, we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show. A reminder, we are covering some stand-connected short stories on our Patreon, and you can get access to that exclusive Patreon content by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. Sean, are we uh, ready to do some fun stuff? I think we are. My first one is there is a man in that overview chapter chapter 26 who's driving around in his car playing keep on the sunny side as sort of this gallows humor as he's driving around (laughs) it reminded me of monty python's life of brian when they're up on the cross singing always look on the bright side of life and it's just sort of that gallows humor that that king can do really well at times yeah jay I'll, i'll go to my next one because this is another line that i've remembered since the very first time i i read this book And that is one of the people that Larry encounters in New York. And he says, hey, this is my chance of a lifetime. I'm going to run around Yankee Stadium naked and then masturbate on home plate. And uh, he goes off and says that's where he's headed to. And I think Larry sort of reminisces. I wonder if that's what that guy ended up doing or not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Sean, I will see your fun stuff reference to masturbation and race you. (laughs) one Lloyd masturbation scene. And in fact, I've always had a memory that this was Harold who did this in the book. Mm. But upon this reread, I realized I was wrong. It was actually Lloyd. And there's a scene when Lloyd is like, he's defeated for the day in his jail cell. And he at last lay down on his cot, put one arm over his eyes and masturbated. It was as good a way of getting to sleep as any. He's not wrong. I mean, if you're the last living person in a jail and there are dead bodies all around you and dead rats that you smashed with a piece of metal that you broke off your bed, sure, it's as good a way as any. Man's got to do what a man's got to do. So, Jay, we, we talked earlier about whether or not being in the company of the mad is worse than being in the company of the dead. And that's brought up because in the jail cell that Lloyd is in, there seems to be one other straggler who's still surviving for a while, at least. And he's just constantly yelling, mother, mother. And it's driving Lloyd to the edge of madness. And at one point he yells out, your mother's in charge of blowjobs at a whorehouse in asshole Indiana, which is a fantastic line. and would make me laugh on its own. Mm-hmm. But then the man responds, mother, question mark. <laughs> As if, as if Lloyd had hit the nail on the head. He's like, like real, yeah, like th- really. That, that's mother? totally her, yeah. Is that, mean... or he's just coming to that realization, mother. Like that, it's it's the question mark that that does it for me. It's just it's just perfect. Uh huh. Again, there's not a whole lot of humor in these books, but when you find it, it's it's really good. Yep, what King can do with that one question mark, <laughs> mother? How could you? <laughs> Uh, so while we are getting to first know Trash Can Man, there's a bit of that scene when he's eating a sandwich. Mm. And his sandwich is a big sloppy sandwich of peanut butter and jelly and tomatoes and Golden's Diablo mustard. Mm. I am not personally familiar with Golden's Diablo mustard. I'm sure it's tasty in the right sandwich, but I have never heard of 
peanut butter and jelly and tomatoes and mustard. And to me, this sounds like it's probably terrible. What's your reaction to the sandwich? Um, I love all four of those ingredients. I love peanut butter. I love jelly. I like tomatoes and I like mustard, especially spicy mustard. I would yeah. not put all four of those together. Yeah, I, I don't all. think they work. I mean, maybe on pumpernickel, but other than that, never together. I don't think I've ever made peanut butter and jelly on pumpernickel. That seems wrong, too. <laughs> yeah, so if I could get my hands on some spicy mustard, I, I only happen to have the, the yellow in my fridge right now. I would try it just to see, but I don't think I'd like it. But you never know. Trash can man might be onto something. Jay, we actually had uh, a meal today, and I only used half of this giant heirloom tomato for it. So I've got slices of tomato upstairs. I do have some spicy mustard and peanut butter and jelly. I will, for our listeners, try out the sandwich tomorrow. I thought you were going to offer to mail me the tomato so I could do this experiment. <laughs> no, I mean, you're going to have to make your own, but I will attempt the sandwich and, and let our listeners know how it turned out. All right. I'm curious myself. I have both grape and strawberry jelly. Which do you think would be better in this situation? You know, King doesn't specify, but I'm going to assume grape. That's the okay. default, right? With peanut that butter is my and jelly. Default. Yes. I, I, will, I will let you know. Okay. All right, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcast. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we finish Book One of the Stand, chapters 35 through 42. And as a sneak peek, chapter 35 has what is the scene that has scared me most in any Stephen King novel upon my first read. So look forward to that. Awesome. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Can you do that one more time? I eat filet mignon seven times a day. My bathtub's filled with Perrier. What can I say? This is the life. That's right. I'm the king. Number one. I buy monogram Kleenex by the ton. I pay the bills. I call the shots. I grease the palms. I buy the yachts. One thing I can guarantee. The best things in life, they sure ain't free. Such a thrill just to be me. This, this is, is the, the life. life. This is the life. Why do I have this in my head? Because it's, it's a very catchy song. Yeah, it is. It's a very catchy song. But I kind of like get upset a little bit like when I, I can't remember something really important. <laughs> right. But Weird Al lyrics. Oh. Some might say that they are very important. I'm hearing like a whistling sound. Probably your voice because you have an old man whistle.